Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Martin White Memorial Lecture uh, for 2010. It's very nice to see you all here. I know some people have been engaging in a day of action, but I'm glad you're getting some intellectual activity at the end of the day. Uh, I'm Kimberly Hutchings, the Head of Department of International Relations, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor Ian Clark from the University of Aberystwyth um, here tonight to give us uh, the lecture. Uh, as all of you, I'm quite sure, know, Martin White was one of the seminal figures in international relations and in particular in the development of international theory in the UK and beyond, a major figure engaging with work in the international society tradition, but more broadly the history of international political thought, colonialism, a whole range of, of different areas. Um, and this... This lecture is one that happens, it's, it's, um, it, it shifts between institutions and is given sometimes at the University of Sussex, sometimes at Chatham House and sometimes here because these are all places that Martin White worked and was closely associated with and it's our great pleasure to host it here uh, this, this year. Um, Ian Clark, as again many of you will know, is a highly distinguished E.H. Carr professor uh, at the University of Aberystwyth. He's written very broadly on a, on a large range of subjects, um, but most recently has been particularly preoccupied with issues of legitimacy in international society and legitimacy in world society, both of which topics speak very much to the legacy of Martin White in international relations. Uh, his most recent work includes uh, two Oxford University Press books, uh, one, Legitimacy in International Society, and another, International Legitimacy and World Society. And tonight he's going to speak to us on hegemony and international society. So welcome, Ian. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Kimberly for that introduction and good evening to everyone. Um, it's a great pleasure and honour for me to be here this evening, uh, an honour above all because of the person in whose name this lecture is given, um, and also of course because of the very distinguished people over the decades who have given this particular lecture, so uh, I'm particularly pleased and honoured to have been invited to, to give this lecture in 2010. <coughs> could, could I maybe just begin on a slightly personal note by uh, locating myself uh, in relation to, to Martin White. Um, I'm of a generation that didn't quite manage uh, to meet Martin White or to hear him speaking uh, and I bitterly regret that. Um, however, in 1971, as a, having freshly graduated from Glasgow University, as you might immediately detect, um, I departed for distant shores uh, the successful holder of a scholarship to the Australian National University and the Department of International Relations there. And the, the point of that is that outside of the LSE at that moment in time, there's scarcely anywhere else you, you could have gone to 
where the reputation in the stock of Martin White was so high as in the ANU in the early 1970s uh, because there was Hedley Bull, Carsten Holbrad, both of whom collaborated on edited productions of Martin's works, uh, people like Coral Bell. So my, my knowledge of Martin White comes second hand, but it came in a very particular atmosphere of Canberra in the early 1970s from people who had been especially close to Martin White and who held him in exceptionally high esteem. So I was nurtured in that atmosphere and at times almost felt as if uh, I had m met Martin White, although uh, that of course was, was not the case. Um, let, let me also explain what I intend to do this evening. Um, the title that you have, Hegemony in International Society, reflects, uh, as Kim said, the project that I've been working on over the last three years, uh, thanks to the ESRC, um, and, and that is the title of the book that is now in press with OUP and should be published in April of next year. I arrived in London late this afternoon, foolishly checked my email, and in the inbox was a very large item, and it was the proofs of the book, <laughs> uh, telling me that I had just over two weeks to, to, to correct them. Um, so that is the, the project and the book on which I've been working. What I'll actually talk about this evening is much more specific, you might be relieved to hear that. I'm not going to inflict the book on you. Um, but the published version of this lecture, which hopefully will be published in International Affairs in, in January, uh, bears the slightly more specific title, China and the United States, a succession of hegemonies question. Now that might seem a world removed from the title under which you were invited to come here this evening, but it's effectively the same topic. Um, and what I want to do is to try and adapt the general argument that I've deployed in the book um, to a specific debate that concerns the international relations community at the present time and indeed uh, many people outside of the international relations community. And that is the debate about what is happening about the relative powers of the United States and China and how that might impact on future international order. So that is the, uh, the specific case that I want to address this evening, but I will do so by drawing on what is the general argument that I try and present in the book. Let me very, very quickly explain what I've been trying to do over the last three years. I was drawn into this uh, as part of my ongoing concerns with the general subject of international legitimacy, but I became particularly concerned with the question of how well international society writers, the English school if you prefer, 
uh, how well they dealt with a situation in which there was a relative concentration of power. And particularly how well the kind of theory that you find in the English school dealt with a situation in which the distribution of power was approximating to or edging away from a concentration in a single dominant power. And it seemed to me that this was a substantial gap in the theory, that not much was actually said about this. And yet, as everyone uh, seemed to think after 1990, that more or less captured the kind of world that we had moved into. And so it seemed to me only appropriate that if English school theory is really about how the great powers manage the international order, then it ought to have something interesting to say about a situation in which there was possibly only one great power. So that's what drew me into this particular project. There is, of course, as I'll explain in the talk, now a sense amongst many people that if that was the world after 1990, perhaps it's no longer the world of 2010. That, that was a moment in time, and now we may be edging beyond that into something else. That's uh, something that can be debated. In any case, the kind of argument that I want to make this evening is that in terms of the notion of international legitimacy in which I am interested, um, that a concept of hegemony then becomes central in trying to define a situation in which one great power does not merely dominate, but comes to be accepted as playing some kind of leading role within international society. And it's in that specific sense that I want to use the concept of hegemony, and I will try and elaborate on that in the course of the discussion uh, this evening. Given that as the starting point, the central argument that I want to make this evening is that if we are thinking about the future trajectories of power of these two states, the United States and China, then that trajectory needs to be plotted not just against the relative material capabilities of these two states, but to include also the extent of the appeal of the respective international orders that they come to represent. And that's a wider, more difficult terrain to get your head around. The way I've developed the argument in the book, and there are a couple of articles already in print that basically state this, I want to consider this hegemony as one possible institution of international society, and that's where it fits into if you like, classical English school theory. I don't want to rehearse that general position this evening, but I do want to apply it to an investigation into what might be happening today as between China and the United States. 
My question then is, what light can such a concept of hegemony shed on the much-mooted power transitions or hegemonic successions that are widely anticipated in the literature and the newspapers as between the United States and China? And my starting point is that this is a debate that is bogged down in a concept of primacy, by which I mean material dominance, not a discussion about hegemony as I wish to define it and present it this evening. So I want to suggest that hegemonic successions result from much more than simply shifts in the material balance of power. And therefore, we really need to be careful to distinguish between power transitions on the one hand and what I'm going to call hegemonic successions on the other. I want to make a very sharp distinction between these two conditions. The way I'll do this is basically in three stages. In the first, and given the occasion this evening, I want to say a bit about Martin White and the notion of hegemony. That seems the sensible starting point for this evening's discussion. I then want to go on and say something about the debate about primacy and the likelihood of a so-called power transition between the United States and China. And then in the third part of the argument, I want to explore the notion of hegemony and the quite different idea of a hegemonic succession. So these are the three building blocks uh, of my discussion. I want to come at this from an adapted version of Martin White's writings. I can't make my argument starting where Martin White left off, uh, because that creates a few problems for me that uh, should become apparent. Um, White himself wrote relatively little about hegemony directly, and certainly considerably less than his one-time collaborator on the British Committee, namely Adam Watson. Adam Watson, his last major book, was bore the title of Hegemony, Hegemony in History. Uh, nonetheless, in his own Martin White Memorial Lecture, delivered in 1989, Adam Watson recalled once remarking to Hedley Bull of the notion of a succession of hegemonies that that idea was originally Martin's. And so that part of my title, the succession of hegemonies, comes from White. And that's what I want to explore. What White actually wrote about hegemony referred largely to what I would call primacy namely the role of the dominant state in the international system, and certainly did not explicitly convey any important sense of legitimacy in the way that I want to make the argument this evening. So to make my case, 
it's necessary to go beyond what White actually wrote on this topic. Uh, and I need to then draw in what he wrote about some other issues that seem to me to be interesting and relevant to the theme that I'm trying to develop. Specifically, then, my purpose is to make a sharp distinction between two phrases that White used frequently and largely interchangeably, and these were a succession of dominant powers on the one hand, and that's my idea of a power transition, and then a succession of hegemonies. But whereas White used these largely interchangeably, I want to treat them as conceptually quite distinct. Despite his different usage, the idea of hegemony was nonetheless an important feature of White's account of international history. You need to read any of his uh, writings to quickly come upon that theme. Uh, it was Adam Watson again who reminded us that White, I quote, suspected that hegemony by the power of powers at the top of the hierarchy was usual and perhaps ubiquitous, an almost universal condition in international affairs. Not only had it been salient in the European system, but he gave compelling evidence of its presence in other historical settings, particularly the case of ancient Greece. His reasoning here is very interesting. If I can quote a sentence, not one that often is mentioned, he said, there may be another law of international politics slower in operation than the balance of power and ultimately overriding it a law of the monopoly of concentration of power. In his view then, all international history is some kind of dialectical encounter between the balance of power on the one hand and hegemony, the concentration of power on the other. Now, if you take that as a reasonable depiction of international history, it seems to me that creates something of a problem or a tension for English school writers uh, like White and others. And that's, of course, precisely because of the importance that he himself attached to the need for a balance of power to have a decent international society. He said on one, uh, one occasion, the tranquility of international society and the freedom of its members require an even distribution of power. So to get an effective international society, you need an equal distribution of power. But he's telling us that one of the laws of international history is this propensity towards a concentration of power. So there's, there's a problem here. Accordingly, in his Martin White lecture that I mentioned before, Adam Watson recollected on behalf of both of them, and I quote, we thought of the hegemonial practice as a series of violations of the legitimate society, 
which the anti-hegemonial coalitions were each time fortunately able to defeat. What he seems to be saying there, certainly it's the way I choose to read it, we can have either international society or we can have hegemony, we can't have both, which creates a bit of a problem for the title of my forthcoming book, but there we go. In other words, it's these coalitions that have emerged to resist the aspirant hegemon that have delivered us from the evil of the concentration of power, but the propensity will always be for that to return in another guise. So what did Martin White himself mean by hegemony and what gives rise to that particular condition? Well, as I've already said, it seems to me that White really intended little by hegemony beyond the notion of material primacy, a dominant material power in the system. And I think we can quite easily establish that by various things that he said about the condition of hegemony or about the nature of power in international politics or the nature of the great powers in managing um, international politics. Because on all of these, to some degree, White seemed to adopt a quite straightforwardly materialist interpretation of the nature of international power. If I can just give two representative quotes to illustrate it. He said on one occasion, we need to distinguish between influence and power. And it is, I quote, concrete power in the end that settles great international issues. So there's influence, but then there's real power, and it's concrete power that settles the great international issues. Elsewhere, he was just as blunt. He said on another occasion, great power status is lost as it is won by violence. So when push comes to shove in international affairs, power comes down to the big battalions. Now, if I stopped at that point, I think the audience would be mystified at my misrepresentation of what White was saying. There is that materialist dimension there the quotes, I do think, speak for themselves. Nonetheless, there is also a much more subtle and nuanced account of power to be found in the various writings of Martin White. And I think it's that that we now need to look at, what he said about power, great powers, dominant states, and hegemony itself. This has to be understood in the totality of his account of international politics. Otherwise, how do we reconcile what I've just said there with other 
reasonable assessments of Martin White, such as you find in Ian Hall in his book on Martin. Um, I quote, White's world was irredeemably, irredeemably normative, not to be measured or modelled. And Hedley Bull, in his 76 Martin White lecture, said that White's view of international relations was that it was focused upon the moral and normative presuppositions that underlie it. So there are numerous occasions like that when White seems to depart from a purely materialist or mechanical account of power and how it is used in international affairs. And it's this other side of White's writings that I want to develop just for a few moments. White said on another occasion, any scientific definition of power will be an abstraction. It will be, I quote, removed from our complicated and unmanageable political experience. In other words, what he's suggesting to us that in terms of power, what you see is not necessarily what you get. There is a difference. And the reason for that, he went on to elaborate, is that not everything can be grasped through the mechanics. And here's the telling sentence that I want to quote. Powers, he said, have qualitative differences as well as quantitative, and their attraction and influence is not exactly correlated to mass and weight. That's really an important sentence, and I will come back to it on a couple of further occasions uh, this evening. He went on to add to that that a dominant power must be described by its purpose as well as by its power. And that dominant powers need to, again I quote, appeal to some design of international unity and solidarity. In other words, a successful dominant power does not just pursue its own vision, it's successful in socialising that vision, in getting others to buy into it. And that begins to open up for me interesting possibilities in terms of the theme that I am developing. And yet White went on to say that the intriguing feature of hegemony was the fact that it was not a series of isolated episodes, but rather it was the succession of hegemonies. This is the phrase that constantly recurs, the succession of hegemonies that was the interesting feature of international history. So what I want to do then is to pick up from that point and to play around with the two contrasting ideas that I've tried to tease out from this discussion, the contrast between a transition between dominant powers on the one hand 
and a succession between hegemons and the other, and to see how these two competing ideas map onto the contemporary discussion about what might be happening in terms of China and the United States. So let me move on to the second major element in my discussion this evening, and that's to look at the US and China through the lens of primacy and a possible power transition, and what might this tell us about what is happening. This idea of a power transition, I'm not going to develop the well-known theory behind it, I simply want to adopt the language. This idea of a power transition is very common in the discussion of what is happening between China and, and the United States. A recent survey of this topic says that that framework is the most widely, widely used in contemporary discussions of the so-called rise of China. Uh, another review, if I can quote briefly from it, says that China's rise affects the United States because of what international relations scholars call the power transition effect. Throughout the history of modern the modern international state system, ascending powers have always challenged the position of the dominant power in the international system, and these challenges have usually culminated in war. So we're being invited to think about China and the United States through that prism of a regular pattern in international history of the rising power challenging uh, and often sliding into war with the hitherto dominant power. I'm not here to suggest this evening that power transitions, shifts in material power are unimportant or uninteresting. <laughs> Clearly, they are important and interesting. And we can have a perfectly sensible discussion about the future prospects for primacy and the likelihood of a power transition between these two states. I don't want to spend a long time rehearsing arguments that you've had, heard many times before but you know the standard kind of account of the world since 1990 uh, in which the United States and Ken Waltz's world has been described as truly alone in the world. During the last couple of decades, and I won't um, inflict too many statistics on you, you've heard most of them I'm sure many times before, um, in the decade from 1998 to 2007, world military expenditure increased across the globe by 33%, whereas US military expenditure increased by 66%, twice the global average. Um, approximately 50% of all current expenditure for, uh, on military purposes is spent by the United States. It remains 
at the present time the source of almost a quarter of all global economic activity, one state a quarter, it's still larger as an economy than the combined European Union total and is something like three times the scale of China. Some 65% of the world's currency reserves continue to be held in US dollars. As Brooks and Walforth in their book then told us, no system of sovereign states has ever contained one state with comparable material preponderance. So that, if White's idea that there is a propensity to a monopoly in the concentration of power is valid, then clearly this is an exceptional statement of it. Um, and before I begin to question that view, there are people, surprising as it may seem, I'm sure, to some of you in the audience this evening, who think that that is the most likely future as well. A recent book has argued that this would be a great time to buy futures in American power. The futures are relatively cheap at the moment, a good buy. Um, my point, however, is of course that all these claims, whether you accept them or not, are really views about the nature of US primacy and what its foundations are and how durable these are likely to be for the longer term. Of course, you only have to open the papers just now um, when anyone who's anyone uh, is either in China or been there or uh, about to, to go there. Uh, to know that there is another side to this assessment in the current situation, uh, an assessment that even if this depicts the kind of primacy the United States enjoyed at the turn of the millennium, it no longer captures the kind of world that we're now in or rapidly moving towards. And if you even look at such a document as President Obama's recent 2010 National Security Strategy document, you find in it phrases like a dynamic international environment in which different nations are exerting greater influence. And elsewhere the document talks about emerging powers in every region of the world increasingly asserting themselves. So. US national security strategy itself seems to depict a world that has moved beyond the kind of primacy that the US seemed at one point to be committed to maintaining. Uh, other US official assessments projecting to 2025 talk all openly about the new age of multipolarity. That's the kind of future depicted in some of these assessments. Um, and you think of um, President Obama's statement uh, two days ago uh, endorsing for the first time Indian, an Indian permanent seat in the UN Security Council, um, presumably part of the reason 
reflecting this assessment that there is a diffusion of power going on and that needs to be recognised in the institutions of international society. Perhaps the other reason he said it was he just happened to be in India at that particular moment. Those that are sceptical of the maintenance of US primacy into the future, of course, um, make much mileage out of the global financial turmoil of the last two or three years. It's negative impact on the US economy. This is an economy in, in great difficulty. There has been a squeeze on the role of the US dollar. There has been considerable damage to the American model of capitalism um, and this all seems to have accelerated what is widely seen as a shift in the centre of the global economy towards East Asia. Domestically, US opinion is increasingly inward looking and its stalemated political system, even more so now after the elections last week, has rendered the United States even less capable of taking on any kind of international leadership role on key issues, climate change, to name but one. So the idea of a power transition draws considerably on what are seen to be these material shifts in the balance of power. And in this specific context, I think the key, the crucial issue, is whether China is inevitably destined in some sense to challenge America's position. It's one thing to describe these indicators of material capability, but what's actually happening in terms of policy? And there, of course, the picture is much less clear-cut than much of the popular debate would have us believe. There has, as many people have concluded, been little evidence of any overt Chinese strategy of balancing in the traditional IR understanding of that notion. The great opportunity was, of course, Iraq in 2003. China was clearly opposed to US military action, but made its opposition less open than did the other resistant states, Russia, Germany and France, were in many ways more vocal in their opposition to proposed US action than indeed was China. In other words, even within this frame of reference, this first frame of reference of a transition in power, the evidence, I think, is no better than ambiguous. There are undeniably, and I'm certainly not here to deny them, important indicators of future shifts in material power. But there's as yet no compelling reason to view Chinese actions as amounting to an aspirant challenge in quite the way that proponents of this kind of uh, perspective would have us believe. And so my reading of the situation is that any actual decline in US influence in recent years has been a consequence of US policies, not a consequence of China's policies. 
And in that same way, my prognosis for the future is that the US-Chinese relationship remains as much a function of the content of US policies as any kind of deterministic structural requirement for China to balance against American power. So the debate about primacy and power transitions is interesting up to a point. It takes us so far, but I think no further than I have indicated. The heart of my discussion then takes us into the third area that I want to consider, and that is not primacy and power transitions, but rather the idea of hegemony and the associated idea of hegemonic successions. The language here in IR is, of course, a bit confusing. When I talk about hegemonic successions, those versed in the literature might think I'm simply rehashing Bob Gilpin and his idea of hegemonic wars as the ultimate test of change in the international system and hegemonic wars as the great turning points in the changing international order. But although Gilpin talks about hegemonic wars, I want to push him into my primacy and power transitions. He's not talking about hegemonic successions in the way that I want to use that term this evening. So just a, a brief further word about where my interpretation is coming from and how it then might begin to relate to this particular topic. I want to reject this idiom that again you find in much of the literature of hegemonic succession in relation to the US and China. And I want to do so for two particular reasons. The first, as you would expect, given what I've been doing in recent years, is my emphasis on the notion of legitimacy and hegemony then as a legitimate form of power, as constituting a social form of power. And secondly, and related to that, is my claim that hegemony requires a discernible hegemonic order, not simply the ability to exercise dominant power within any kind of bilateral context. So these are the two areas in which I want to begin to pull the two concepts uh, further and further apart. I would like at this point to call Martin White as a witness for the defence. Uh, unhappily, uh, Martin in this particular respect appears at first glance to be a hostile witness, if I were to call him, because if you read his famous essay on international legitimacy, the paper that he wrote with that title, 
and you look at a couple of the key uh, claims that he makes there, uh, it's hardly very supportive of my own argument. He was, or seemed to be, somewhat dismissive of the role and the significance of international legitimacy in international history. He chided his readers in one sentence, I quote, the influence of principles of legitimacy upon international politics has been generally overstated. Um, glad he wasn't a reviewer uh, for the publishers of, of my last two books. Uh, and he said elsewhere, conceptions of international legitimacy have had a minor part in shaping international history. So, you know, again, not something I would uh, really like to have seen on the, the back cover of my, my books. But of course, White was using the term international legitimacy in that essay in a very particular sense that doesn't fundamentally challenge, I think, what I wanted to, to say. Um, nonetheless, there's not much support that I can draw from, from Martin in, in that area. Nonetheless, it has seemed to me, and this is the argument that I've been making, um, that the concept of hegemony is most useful when it is associated with legitimacy. We've got other words that describe <laughs> situations of dominance, preponderance, and all the rest of it. Uh, let's use the word hegemony to describe something else rather than simply make it a redundant term to describe something that we're already familiar with. And this idea of hegemony as meaning a legitimate practice in international society emphasizes, as I've already said, the institutional element. It's about the empowerment of the institution of hegemony, not about the empowerment of the hegemon. And in terms of my argument, and I can't develop this this evening, it's only such an institutional account that makes sense of a concept of hegemony in international society. This is the only way I can square the circle which Martin White's earlier description that I referred you to, you can either have international society or you can have hegemony, you can't have both. For me, the only way that these can be brought together is precisely by such an institutional notion uh, of hegemony. But it's here that I do want to bring White back into the argument again, because some of his other reflections about the nature of international power speak directly to the point that I wish to emphasize here. Important is the stress that White placed, as I've already mentioned, on the purpose of dominant powers. Not just their material power, but their purpose. He believed that powers presented qualitatively different appeals to international unity and solidarity. That's a quote from White. He spoke about a kind of common interest represented by dominant powers 
And he reached a surprisingly positive judgment that some dominant powers, again I quote, have generally safeguarded real values, offered real benefit for other nations. Really, given what he seems to be saying elsewhere about the dangers of the concentration of power, that's a surprisingly positive assessment to make. And that then for me makes my point that hegemony needs to be associated not just with the exercise of dominant power, but with the purpose of creating a distinctive and broadly acceptable pattern of international order. So what's really at stake in the hegemony debate about China and the United States. My immediate point then is that any expansion of China's economic power, as many people now describe it, does not even begin to translate into a hegemonic succession. Many of the claims that I've been talking about to relative shifts in material power between the US and China can be readily admitted. I'm not here to deny them. They do not amount to any succession in White's use of that term, let alone to one that is hegemonic in mine. So in both counts, I want to reject the use of that term. And so we must beware this conflation of the power transition thesis with the notion of a hegemonic succession, because the latter entails much more and is much more interesting, to my mind, than is the former. We need to remember White's injunction that attraction and influence is not exactly correlated to mass and weight. So what's at stake here in this reading of the debate? If we move beyond the discussion of primacy to a real discussion of hegemony as I want to define it, we need additionally to address the prospects for China to convert increasing material power into a distinctive and acceptable form of international order. And that for me breaks down into two subsidiary questions. First of all, how content is China to operate within the existing order? Or does it have an alternative order in mind? And secondly, if it's the latter, if it would prefer an alternative order, how then likely is it that China can serve as an effective model that will get that order accepted elsewhere? I can't uh, do full justice to answering these two questions, but let me very, very briefly make uh, a quick comment about each of these. On the first, is China content to operate within the existing order? There is a very substantial consensus among specialists in the field that for the moment at least, 
China is broadly supportive of that existing order. China has made its great advances working through the existing order. And many Chinese commentators themselves seem to concur that this is what has made possible the kind of, quote, peaceful rise in which China has recently been engaged. Whether that continues, of course, is a very open question, and I don't intend to, to close it down. Um, and whether it's possible for that to continue is not for China alone to ensure, but depends just as much upon how far China is accommodated by others in that existing order. The second question, what kind of model does China offer and how attractive might it be as a role model in establishing that kind of order? Well, this is a very large and difficult question to consider. There are parts of China's policy that strike a chord elsewhere. That's pretty self-evident. It's kind of Westphalian sovereignty agenda has an appeal in many parts of the South and selectively in the North as well. There is quite good reason to view the kind of regional accommodation of the last 10-20 years in East Asia, Southeast Asia as some kind of positive acknowledgement of China's contribution within the region. These are pluses. I wouldn't want in any way to question them. Nonetheless, if you ask people, you know, what kind of model does China represent, then I think most people would respond by saying it's a model of successful economic development in particularly difficult circumstances. But its unique selling point, that model, is that it's particularly adapted to China's own exceptional conditions. To that extent, the model isn't particularly transferable elsewhere. My more general point as I bring this to a conclusion is that the future respective standings of the United States and China then evidently depend upon much more than any straightforward extrapolation of their material capabilities. In the short term, in the kind of understanding of the word that I wish to use this evening, there is simply no prospect of China acting as a hegemon in its own right. That's not on the cards for the immediate future. And for that reason, the real issue at stake in this debate is not one about China succeeding the United States, a chronological succession that the language implies, but rather the possibilities for the construction of an international order that can, to some degree, satisfy the preferences of both these powers at the same time. That's going to be far from easy, but it's not necessarily impossible. Let me bring this to a conclusion, some final remarks.
as will be by now, I hope, pretty obvious, a detailed discussion of United States primacy and its potential erosion is not really what I've been concerned to, uh, to concentrate on this evening. There have been plenty of discussions of this issue about primacy and the supposed power transitions that are now taking place in relation to it. The much more interesting and pre uh, pressing need is to establish a viable account of hegemony and what might then be entailed by this notion of a hegemonic succession. Future projections of material power, in any case, as I think many of us are painfully aware, are notoriously unreliable. We've had so many premonitions of the collapse of US power in the past, in the 70s and 80s, that simply did not, not turn out the way the projections uh, were uh, intended to convey. Likewise, it seems to me, projections of China's future role, based simply on extrapolations of its current rate of economic growth, are bound to deceive. Uh, and that says something uh, not uh, spectacularly original or, I think, controversial. Um, China, as everyone knows, faces a complex array of severe domestic problems that will dominate its policy priorities for many decades to come. And it's wholly speculative beyond that to imagine what kind of contribution to an international order China will be able to make beyond that. Let me end on a possibly speculative and possibly even gloomy note. It may well be that the occurrence of a power transition, but in the absence of a hegemonic succession in terms of future international, international order, will leave us with the worst of both worlds. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. Thank you for that very interesting, thought-provoking uh, lecture. We'll just give a second while people have to go, go. And then we have around about 15 minutes for questions. I'll stand so I can see who's waving at me. But is there anyone who'd like to kick off? Yes, we have one at the back. Mira. Hi, Professor Clark. Thank you very much uh, for your talk. Um, it's really good to hear somebody talk, obviously, about hegemony as being multi-layered and much more than simply material power. I wonder whether um, being more specific might give us a better picture of the nature of China's possible or otherwise hegemony. I'm thinking specifically about the role of China in Africa, where it doesn't simply seem to be about throwing material weight around, but uh, specifically about a different model of cooperation, about a different model of development, uh, and something which is kind of substantively affecting the way things are done in the region. One thinks of Rwanda and Paul Kagame's ability to push back against uh, America with Chinese support. Is this on? Um, 
I, I hope I wasn't saying anything to suggest that China does not have an active foreign policy in various parts of the world, and you particularly single out Africa. Uh, clearly, uh, China has had a very active policy in that region. Um, goes back several decades, but the, the, the particular incarnation you're speaking about, I guess, is of, of, of more recent vintage. And I, again, I'm not trying to suggest that there are no positive or constructive elements in it. There are differences in approach that you can find there. My, my question is whether that would really amount to uh, trying to create from the bottom up a new kind of international order. And I would find it slightly more difficult to see compelling evidence of that because, you know, what, what really strikes me as an observer, and I'm, I'm not a specialist on China, people know that, I hope, um, is that, um, and, and Africa illustrates this as well as anything, you know, China has a very robust notion of what its national interests are and it has pursued them quite actively in various parts of the world, especially related to issues of uh, natural resources. So uh, I see a, you know, a, a very understandable Chinese policy of engagement in Africa uh, that's well suited to the kinds of interests that China has. I'm not sure I see their blueprint for a future international order um, that's about to inspire a, a lot of uh, uh, confidence elsewhere. Um, thank you very much, Professor Clark. Um, I'd like to push you a little bit on your notion of hegemony. Could one have hegemony without a hegemon? In other words, right now it's clear that there's a liberal hegemony out there in the international order. Um, is, is the, was the United States, the United States was central to that. Could it have done it alone? Okay, um, sorry if I sit near the mic, I can't actually see you. <laughs> uh, if you can imagine I'm talking directly to you, even if I have to look away. Um, I, I think the, uh, my full answer to that, uh, you'll have to wait for the, the book in a few months because the book uh, discusses that in quite some detail. But you've, you've picked on something interesting that I couldn't really develop this evening. What, what I've quite explicitly been doing is challenging what seems to me to be a, um, a deeply embedded notion in a lot of the IR literature in a particularly the hegemonic stability type literature, uh, that w we know what hegemony looks like and it always looks the same. There's only one model of hegemony and all the different historical models uh, broadly conform to that. And it seems to me that's highly questionable. And what I've tried to do is elaborate a, a much more complex institutional notion of hegemony where it can take a variety of forms including a collective hegemony and you, 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 you put your finger on something important there. It seems to me that if, if you look at the so-called historical hegemonies, Britain in the 19th century is the, uh, of course the, the favourite example here. 
Um, it's hard to sustain any kind of concept of a British hegemony as acting wholly on its own. Uh, politically and strategically, Britain operated through the concert of Europe. On its economic management role, and I'm glad as I walked into the building, Andrew Walter walked out. He's the authority on this, so he's not here to contradict me. Um, but he himself says, you know, on, on its economic role, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, the, the gold standard and all that, Britain relied heavily. It wasn't just the Bank of England, it was other continental banks, Germany and France, that were equally supportive. And if you, if you then jump to post-1945, it's a different kind of hegemony that the US, Pax America, Americana, uh, uh, actually represented. Because either that was collective in terms of the whole international community, or else it was what I've called it in the book, it was an example of a coalitional, coalitional hegemony. The US was never a hegemon in the world as a whole. It was hegemon within the Western system that signed up to these institutions. Uh, so it wasn't a, a global hegemon unless you change the concept halfway through and slide from a legitimate hegemon to simply the dominant power. So it's exactly that diversity of hegemony that I think is interesting and IR hasn't really uh, made as much of as it should have been doing. Hello, thanks very much for the uh, very interesting talk which could, you know, certainly in my mind has produced lots and lots of questions but I'm going to restrict myself to one uh, which relates to the philosophy of history uh, in, in, in uh, white, and in particular to the extent to which you've considered hegemony as a kind of, uh, as a concept, as a, as a uh, product of white's philosophy of history, which uh, you ended on a gloomy note, and he began and ended on a gloomy note when it came to the concept of hegemony, in the sense that uh, when you read his work in particular, uh, where he deals with philosophy of history and his kind of Christian pessimism and his theology uh, and you have to stay, you start with the state which then becomes the hegemon, he says Leviathan is a simple beast and its appetites are equally simple, they're for power and then we see the motive force of, of history being if you like uh, power creating order and that order producing counter hegemony and anarchy and you end up not so much with a dialectic which was the kind of position you're taking but you end up more with a kind of uh, either a kind of a cycle of, of anarchy order, anarchy order, producing hegemony, producing anarchy. Um, and that's a kind of very pessimistic notion of, of hegemony that we see in, uh, in White, in a kind of history of philosophy sense. But we also see a pessimism in his, in his theology, uh, where all uh, human politics has to be seen in the context of the inevitable failure of the city of man and the, the eventual triumph of the city of God, uh, in the sense that uh, hegemony, if you like, is the ultimate product of, of the failed politics of, of, of human existence. And this is why we get the succession of hegemonies and why the, the succession of hegemonies is ultimately going to result in, in failure and uh, uh, you know, the, the constant progression of evils until the end of time. So it's, a, it's an even more gloomy note, perhaps, than, than you were adverting to in the, in, at the end. Well, I, I think I can accept that as a comment rather than a question. Clearly, 
Um, I simply looked at the, the tip of an iceberg. I, in the limited time that I had to devote to, to White this evening, I was looking at his writings on hegemony. Others have written at great length about the philosophy that underlies that, and I didn't think it was appropriate for me to uh, particularly pursue that uh, full argument, but I, I, I welcome your observation and have no particular uh, objection to, to anything that you say there. Okay, uh, we've only got limited time and I have three questions still waiting, so I'm wondering if I can take those three and then you respond. Is that okay? Yeah. And, yeah. So we first have the one in this row here, then we have Adam Roberts over there and another one just down there. Yeah. I've got two short questions. One is, uh, you mentioned that a Chinese model cannot be transferable because they have exceptional condition. And I understand that this exceptional condition relates to their political system. Um, from that point of view, my question is whether you think if they have political system which can be accept acceptable to international society, um, then can they have um, successive um, hegemony. And sorry, my second question is, you mentioned in the middle of the presentation that empowerment of institutional hegemony is really important. And how do you situate this, this um, institutional he hegemony in the, in the relationship between the US and China? start actually yes because we've taken a while to get to the microphone to the other end. Do you want to respond to those? <laughs> okay, ever so quickly then. Um, I, when I was saying that uh, China's model is exceptional, I, I wasn't actually particularly thinking of the politics of it. it. It was more to do with the scale of it. You know, it was managing an economy starting from such a, a low base, if you like, and getting it up to reasonable standards of living for the, the people. That, you know, the, there are not many societies comparable to China in that, that respect. So, uh, I mean, the politics is important, but it wasn't particularly the point that I was making. The, 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 the institution of hegemony, I, I couldn't begin to develop that in my talk, but it, it, it's some sort of notion of a collective hegemony that I would... I would then have, have in mind there. We, we've seen a negative example of it. A negative example was Copenhagen a year ago when the United States and China led from the front and made sure that everyone went as slowly as they wanted them to. That was a collective hegemony, but it was negative. There may be possibilities for a positive version as well. The two, last two questions now. Adam over there and then one down here. My name is Vivi. I'm a master's student in University College London. And um, uh, I'm thinking about hegemony. I uh, categorize, um, what is it? Uh, two two categories of constraint faced by China uh, regarding its potential to be a successor, a successor of uh, US hegemony. Um, the first is 
uh, more the internal constraint, as you mentioned, that China is facing a severe domestic problems. And uh, I think it's com confirmed uh, by many Chinese students in my class who say that uh, main uh, domestic problem faced by China is related to the population, the poverty, inequality of in income distribution, and also that they consider the U.S. as the main trade uh, partner and they are dependent on the U.S., so it's impossible for them to stand up to challenge the U.S. But my concern is more on the second uh, category, this the uh, in external constraint. Um, you, I conclude that you perceive uh, hegemony as in a, in a positive way, uh, for example, compared to what neo-Gramscian thinker will uh, think about hegemony. Uh, so I see your, your version of hegemony is more idealistic and benevolent, but um, I'm considering the fact that uh, China cannot be categorized as a democracy. So I'd like to know what's your opinion about uh, how the international society perceives the situation uh, regarding the potential of China to be a potential hegemon in the future. Thank you very much. Okay, I, the, the two questions are uh, not unrelated, so maybe if I just give a kind of shotgun answer, I'll, 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 I'll hit something. Um, I, I, I was certainly only talking about the foreseeable future, you know, maybe the next 20, 20 years or so, and I wouldn't uh, want to venture beyond that. I wasn't closing down any possibilities. Uh, <clears throat> I, I acknowledge the point that you, you made, Adam, and maybe did so in a perfunctory way that has uh, led you to, to ask the question. But I... I, I'm myself sceptical given some of the kinds of problems faced by international society at the present time, whether simply a return to an emphasis on sovereignty is really going to be the kind of rallying cry that will really do the business for, uh, for, you know, for the next 50 years or so. I, I, I'm just sceptical about that. I think something more is needed than you know, let's all return to the tents. Although that, you know, clearly, um, you know, the one place that will be very receptive to that is, of course, the United States. That's a country that in many ways is headed that way uh, in, in any event. But I, I'm, I'm sceptical as to whether that gives us a, um, a, a pattern for future international order that is really going to be a, a rallying point for the, the next, next couple of generations. Um, I, I think that partly relates to the, 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 the point that, that you made. My, my comment again wasn't specifically that you know, China cannot serve as an international role model because of you know the kind of uh, political system that it is. That that creates day-to-day -day problems in dealing with China, and you know they've been on the front pages of the newspapers uh, exactly over the last uh, couple of days. You know, how do you negotiate with China on other issues? Um, without raising things that are uncomfortable for all the parties involved. 
Um, so, so that, that, that raises diplomatic difficulties, but it wasn't, it wasn't essentially that that I was saying was the reason why China cannot be an effective role model. Um, it's rather, going back to the couple of other points I've made, I, I, I just don't quite see what the substance of that international order is that China would, would, would really like to push for. Now, that's not to say that could not materialise over the coming decades, but my own gut feeling for what it's worth, and it's probably not very much, going back to the point I made towards the end, is that I think China's energies are going to be so focused on domestic issues um, that I don't think it's got the surplus capacity you know, to, to really uh, be the centre of a, a new international order in any effective way. Okay, I'm sorry to cut uh, the question short, but uh, the good news is that um, the session is to be followed by a reception in the senior common room, the fifth floor of the old building. If you don't know the way, just follow the crowd. So you will have an opportunity to raise questions over a drink uh, with Ian after the lecture. Um, just to wrap up, I'd like to say thanks, threefold thanks, I think. Thanks, first of all, to the Martin White Memorial Trust and to the work that it does. Uh, it's great to have heard another uh, lecture in this series, which is now in its 35th year, I think, or something of the sort. Uh, I want to say thanks to Pete Wilson, who's acted as the local uh, uh, contact person organising things at this end in the IR department. And last but not least, thanks to Ian, who's given us a fantastic lecture and lots to think about. Thank you very much. Thank you.